Welcome back to a special edition of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the producers, the writers, directors, the actors, the costume designers, production designers, composers, film editors, sound editors, sound mixers, you name it, we talk to them. And I'm so excited today with this special edition uh, to welcome back Nick Fituri Scown. Um, our regular listeners will recall Nick was with us a couple years ago talking about his feature comedy, Pretty Bad Actress. Uh, but now he switched gears and he's got a new film, a documentary, his first documentary to talk about. It's called Too Soon Comedy After 9 11. It's a very interesting documentary with a very unique perspective. Uh, it ex as it, he explores the halt of comedy, of Broadway, of life as we knew it with 9-11. But through the eyes of comedy and the comedians who helped lift us out of the horror, of the pain, of the sorrow, of the events of 9-11... He has interviewed over 50 different comedians in addition to incorporating archival news footage, stills, and archival comedy segments, as well as some other footage as well. It is a timeline. The chronology is very easy to follow. What's interesting is that Nick started this film in 2016. But as you'll see when you watch this documentary, which airs tonight, September the 8th at 6 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Eastern on Vice, and then a special screening on 9-11 during Dances with Films, a 2.30 screening on Saturday, September 11th. So if you're in Los Angeles, head on over to the Chinese complex in Hollywood to see this film on the big screen. I can tell you that what Nick and his co-director and story editor, what Julie Seaball, what they have done, nothing is, the footage that is included is not gratuitous. It is respectful, as are all of the interviews within this documentary. It's a very, very interesting perspective on a look at history, the past 20 years, and comedy as, as a catharsis. So without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with Nick Fituri Scown talking about Too Soon, 
comedy after 9-11. Well, hello there, Nicholas. Hey there, Lynn. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? It's so good to talk to you again. I'm just so thrilled you made another film, and you've made a documentary this time. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Moving yeah. moving along smartly. Well, I guess. I, I mean, it was a, it was a five-year process, so it wasn't the, uh, the <laughs> fastest uh, uh, project, but it, it, it got done. Okay. I like it, so. But then how long did it take for Pretty Bad Actress? Uh, probably longer for that. See? <laughs> Well, what's really interesting about Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11, is you talk about years of your life. You didn't even start this until, what, roughly 2016. So you had um, 15 years to cogitate on this and think about your own feelings and any kind of lingering aspects from the effects of 9-11, as did these comedians that you are now sitting down with in quote-unquote present day. Um, and I think that now gives you, I mean, it takes that many years, I think, for all the thoughts and feelings on a, an event like this to really cogitate so that you can make a film like this. Without, without that uh, that time 
Well, you know, the irony of Too Soon Comedy After 9-11 coming out now, and of course, I'm so excited it's, it, that Vice partnered up with you, so it's premiering on Vice tonight, and then... Yeah, on Sunday at uh, at two thirty. So yeah, 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 the Saturday at two thirty. So, but the irony here is that here we are now, twenty years after the fact, and I think timing is everything. As in, as with comedy, as when answering the question too soon, timing is everything, and for your film to be coming out now while we are in the midst of a global pandemic. We have rising case numbers that are higher than what they were last year when we were supposed to be in the prime heat of the pandemic. Um, and there's no end in sight. And then we just now, 20 years later, get out of Afghanistan and remove our presence in the Middle East militarily. Um, you talk about things coming together. Um, so you've got people now with a very unique shared common experience once again, and what started our presence in the Middle East 20 years ago has now ended to very divisive reaction from the people. Um, you couldn't script something like this, Nick. Something that was 
he watched the film, he, he was glad he watched it and actually made him feel better about where we're at currently. Well, and I think that's an important an important part of your documentary is that you explore the idea of too soon. When was it okay to laugh? When was it okay for Broadway to reopen? When was it okay for late-night comedy? David Letterman took the lead. Everybody followed Letterman. Um, but I think the lessons learned from that that we now get to see with 2020 hindsight, thanks to you, um, that came into play you know, up front and center during lockdown last year when we had all the late night, you know, late night shows. We're going to give people comedy. We're going to give them something to laugh at. We're going to do it from our from our closet, our bedroom, our, our living room, but we're going to do it. And I think that's a very important thing that you show is how cathartic comedy is and what a cohesive uh, you know, tissue, it binds us together. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I hope if, if when people watch the film, they, they realize that. Because I think sometimes we can take for granted the fact that Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Kimmel were, were doing, uh, you know, uh, shows from their living rooms just to try and help us. You know, like, like uh, you know, or like Conan O'Brien, you know, he was doing shows at a local theater here in L.A. called Largo to help um, just keep them afloat because they were going to be closed down otherwise. So, uh, but yeah, hopefully the film helps remind people that these entertainers are, are helping us, you know, through these, these hard, difficult times and... Um, you know, and I, I think also something we try to do in the film is to point out they're 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 suffering too. Like mm-hmm. they're they're going through the same world and same uh, things as, as we are, and so uh, you know to try and just give them the kudos for finding a way to keep doing their art uh, and to keep um, entertaining us and making us smile in the most challenging of times. You know, well, let's rewind a little bit to 2016 when you when you got this this lightning bolt hit you of, you know, I'm going to make this documentary. What prompted this? I mean, because this is out of the blue to decide you want to make a documentary about when is it okay to laugh? When is it okay to be funny? Um, especially in light of 9-11. I mean, it was, um, I, I guess, I mean, funny enough, I, I, the kind of prompt that really sparks this, you know, again, is, is, it's an idea that I'd had for a really long time, but I um, had, had gotten a book for a family member who was uh, struggling with their career at the time and didn't know what to do, and uh, there's this book, The Four-Hour Work Week by Tim Ferriss, um, which I had had a copy of because I, I got like one of those like Amazon bundles where you get like three books and I was like, oh, I, like, I like to get those. But he had a fitness book and so I was like, okay, I'll get his fitness book and his business book. Uh, but I never actually uh, had, had cracked it open. Uh, and so on the plane flight home, I was like, I should probably actually read a little of this book to make sure I'm not giving them like bad advice or anything. <laughs> yeah, but with this book, and so I, uh, so I read 
headed on the plane, and you know, it's mostly about you know starting businesses, but in some ways, being a filmmaker, you are your own business. And so, what one of the things he had suggested in the book is if there's some idea or concept that you have been thinking about for a long time, but you are struggling because you don't know what to do with it, is there someone? Is are there five people? that you could email right now who might be able to help. And, you know, the first thing that popped into my head was, was this, this idea of too soon and doing a, a documentary about comedy after 9-11. And so, uh, you know, I was like, oh, I, yeah, it definitely is something that I never really did because I didn't think I didn't think I could. I didn't, I was like, oh, I've never made a documentary. Um, you know, I love comedy, but I'm not in the comedy world. Uh, but uh, just kind of that prompt that uh, Tim Ferriss suggested, it, it um, made me think of uh, this woman, Julie Sebaugh, who I had met at a wedding, at a friend's wedding, and she was a comedy journalist. And I thought, okay, well, there's at least one person right there who I can contact and see, is, this, is there anything to this idea? So uh, Julie and I uh, met, and I pitched her the idea, and she really liked it, and so... Um, it was then kind of the two of us of like, okay, well, let's, you know, <laughs> she'd never made a film before. She does, she's never made any film or TV. And so we were both kind of like, well, you know, let's, let's just do this and see what happens and not worry about um, kind of getting permission or a green light from anybody. Let's just, uh, you know, like Julie had a lot of connections and I had uh, equipment I could borrow from, <laughs> from my friends and roommates. And so we, uh, we uh, just started, started going and started making it from there. Wow. So once you decide you're going to make this, where do you even start? I mean, you have over 50 named comedians who sat down with you. You have others that, you know, Letterman, Colbert, and Stewart that I'm sure it would have been nice to get in present day interviews. You've got archival news, archival still photographs, archival comedy sketches. Um, you have so much here. Where do you even start once you and Julie say, okay, we're going to make this? <laughs> did, yeah. did you, did you yeah. draw it a blueprint or was it, okay, well, let's just start shooting something and we'll see if anything takes. Well, kind of, uh, what we ended up doing was we started, basically we started with research because we were like, um, you know, it's, it's, it would have been very easy. I mean, we had a lot of great, uh, well-known people that, that, that we interviewed, but there's so many people in the comedy world that Julie could have reached out to. We, we were like, okay, we need to put some limitations on this because otherwise we could just be shooting hundreds and hundreds of interviews, you know, uh, because comedians often have opinions on things. I don't know if you know about comedians. <laughs> yeah, they often have opinions on things. So uh, it wouldn't be hard to get opinions on, on the topic, but we were like, okay, well, let's do some research. And so... You know, we looked up kind of the the big things that you know kind of pop to mind first, like uh, Gilbert Gottfried's uh, Hugh Hefner roast uh, too soon joke, and Saturday Night Live coming back, and Letterman, like those things that popped into mind, and then started trying to track down footage of those, and um, we'd actually kind of find try to find any interviews that had already even been shot, so that we would just have an idea of what someone's story might be if we were lucky enough to interview them. Mm -hmm. Um, so we, we started to do that to kind of be like, okay, the limits we sort of came up with were like, were they, were they there at the time? Was their, uh, career affected by it? Were they in New York? Did they 
change their comedy? Did they um, do material about uh, it, what was happening at that time? And so that kind of started to whittle the list down. And so um, we actually, even before we started shooting, we kind of cut almost for ourselves, though we did show it to some people, as just a kind of trailer of what we thought the film would be like from the archival footage we had found. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we could use that when we would email interview subjects. We could be like, hey, we're doing this thing. Here's what it's going to feel like. Did, can you sit down and, and talk to us? So it, so it wasn't just um, words on a page. It's always just good to have something people can watch to get a sense of what they're getting involved with. Um, so we, we had a kind of like proof of concept with that little uh, trailer. And so... Then what we did is when we did start interviewing people and, um, you know, kind of just doing it on, again, it's just kind of a passion project, so it would just be like on my lunch break or my dinner break, <laughs> or if uh, Julie had an assignment in New York, then I would use my Sky Miles to fly out there and <laughs> sleep on somebody's living room so we could try to shoot some interviews there, and um, we would just slowly collect the interviews and then build, uh, kind of almost from that first trailer, start to build out their, the, the people we interviewed, their stories. And they would always uh, bring up some, some things that we had forgotten. You know, they'd bring up like a Tina Fey's uh, SNL joke about uh, the mafia getting back to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, you know, like the, that kind of thing. And, uh, or like, oh, for one comic, it was John, you know, it was John Stewart's return that really affected them. And so, okay, we got to look up John Stewart's stuff. And, um, uh, just hearing stories. So the more we, we kind of built and the more we interviewed people, the more stories we would hear, which would be like, oh, okay, now we definitely got to interview Scott Thompson because that was a story I, had, I wasn't familiar with before. Um, or like the um, um, comics of like Arab, Middle Eastern, and Southeast Asian descent who would, would form the Access of Evil Comedy Tour. It's like, oh, I had not heard this story. That's an amazing story. So then we built time for that. So it was a um, kind of an idea of like, let's build a, a skeletal structure based on what we know, and then we'll start adding to that. And uh, Julie's uh, thing, and I don't know if it's because of her journalist background, but she was like, let's just stick to the timeline. You know, like there's so many ways we could have told the story, let's stick to the timeline. So we're starting before what happened, and then we're moving up until today so that we have, um, you know, that way we, we don't have to do too much. Uh, you know, creative math of like, where does this fit? Where does this go? And mm-hmm. like, well, let's just tell the story as it unfolded in, in the timeline. So that, uh, that kind of helped us and saved us. Mm-hmm. Well, I, and I do, I lo- not only do I like the timeline structure, which I think will make it, because 20 years has passed, which I think will make it much more cogent for moviegoers. Uh, but also, the way that you structure this story um, and what you chose to include. I mean, we we start pre nine eleven. We have nine eleven. We move into the Iraq War, um, and then you disti- show us the distinctions and how that comedy changed, going from nine eleven into the war, and how John Stewart and Stephen Colbert were the breakouts. With that, you show us the change, the cultural zeitgeist changing with comedy based on the history as it was unfolding. And I love how you structured that. That had to be challenging to figure out what to include 
in that timeline uh, as things were changing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, even today, you know, I saw uh, someone was commenting on a post, like, oh, I hope you're doing something on the George Carlin special that he taped and then, that, you know, had to get scratched. And I was like, oh, we, did, we had a section on that, but we had to cut it for time. So there was um, many stories that hopefully we'll get to share, like uh, deleted scenes or something like that. But um, uh, there were so many stories that we had found and wanted to include um, that that was that was the biggest challenge was just we had too much stuff. There's too many there's too many good jokes. There's too many clips uh, that um, archival clips that that you know helped tell the story. That that was that became the biggest challenge. Was, you know it's like the the kill your darling thing. There was just so many things that we wanted to include that that it was tough to choose what to. And some of it would come down to okay, is this a, is this a story beat that we've already felt before or you know is this repeating information that we already kind of know and so uh that would become kind of the uh, barometer we'd have to use is like is this new information is this showing change and growth or does this feel like we're repeating ourselves and so and also is there is there a conflict you know i think um i had read somewhere when we were first starting like the worst the worst thing a documentary can be is a wikipedia page mm -hmm. on screen you know like People don't just want information about what happened. They can they can read a Wikipedia article for that. So they they need emotion and characters that they care about and uh, obstacles, just like any any other uh, narrative film. You, you know, a documentary film needs that those same uh, uh, kind of beats and moments to help propel the story. So that would become a big uh, test. It's like, okay, is is there something here that we're talking about a challenge and an obstacle? Are they overcoming it? Are they failing? Um, you know, like we, we talked about a couple comics who, who um, you know, who, whose careers were altered, like Scott Thompson and, uh, you know, Bill Marr losing his show and things like that. And so, uh, you know, that was always a conscious thing of, because again, there is so much that to what you're going to squeeze into 88 minutes um, really has to matter and uh, be propelling the story forward. Mm-hmm. Well, something that you do very well that really impressed me, Nick, is you found the balance between reflection and analysis and gratuitous imagery that might traumatize, might reinvigorate PTSD for people. Um, you don't saturate the documentary with footage that we've seen time and time and time again, and every time... Most, I think every time most Americans see the footage, they get chills. Um, you were very judicious in the imagery that you showed, not only of 9-11, but also clips from the bombings over in the Middle East uh, when Bush declared, you know, went in there. So I'm curious, you know, your thought process behind that, because you very easily could have shown more to hammer home the tragedy, the trauma. But I got the sense that you're letting us decide how much trauma we want to relive based on your choices. Yeah, it was, I mean, that was, um, that was uh, one of the uh, main challenges we faced and that was uh, something that uh, Julie and I discussed a lot, which is we knew there's going to be, there already are and there's going to be a lot of 9-11 documentaries and there's going to be TV special 
horrendous footage of uh, what happened that day because it was a terrible thing, obviously. And what we wanted to do is we wanted to be able to show what happened, um, but not cause try not to cause any PTSD or re-traumatize people. Like we have interview subjects in the film who were down there that day and first responders and the last thing we wanted to do was make a film that they couldn't watch themselves because it would be too traumatic and so the choice the choice we made was to try to stick almost exclusively to uh, still photos uh, of the attack itself so that um, it's not that news footage that we've seen again and again but mm-hmm. it, it just reminds you of the moment so you don't Hopefully it doesn't trigger anything, but it just reminds you of like, oh, yes, that happened. And, you know, we want to, we still need to paint a picture for, you know, there's kids today in college who weren't even born yet, yep. which is crazy to think about. Um, and so we, we knew we still, for that audience, we need to help them understand how uh, terrible it was and how dark it was and why uh, the whole world felt like, oh, we're never going to laugh again because it just seemed impossible after what we had witnessed. So how do we communicate that to a viewer who wasn't there without traumatizing someone who did watch it that day or was in New York that day? And so relying on still photos was, was kind of the choice we made, and hopefully it succeeds. Because the last thing we want is for, for people not to watch the film because of that. And, and so we tried to keep it short and um, uh, you know not have it overwhelm the film, but, but at least do its job to set up um, what you need to know to understand why it was such a thing that we, why it was a thing we needed healing from in the first place, uh, and why it was so difficult for the comics to, to discuss it on stage or to do their job. And so, hopefully, we found that balance. But it was it was definitely a, a hard balance to uh, to figure out in in editing and post. Yeah, I th- I think you did a, an amazing job with that, especially with that particular aspect of the film, Nick. You know, were you editing, because you've got, as I said at the top, you've got over 50 interviews in here, plus all this other footage. Were you editing as you went? Did you wait until you accumulated everything? You know, putting on your editor's hat here for a minute. You know, when, you know, what was your editing process like? Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was uh, continuous and ongoing. Like I said, we... <laughs> We started editing before we even had footage, when we just had uh, kind of archival clips to use. So we were editing from the beginning, and whenever we got a new interview, we would start um, cutting it down. Julie would be working on, like, a paper cut, trying to find the bites that she liked the most, and then uh, I'd, I'd take her paper cut and then start cutting the actual video to be like, oh, that line sounds great on paper, but it doesn't look as good when you hear them say it, or, like, those kind of things. So... We would just cut as we went along so uh, that we could build the story out. And it would also help us kind of figure out, okay, how does this story work? So, for example, one of the first sections we cut was um, the the Onion uh, 9-11 issue section uh, because we had those kind of three main interviews. And so we knew, okay, we have the, the bones of the story here. And by cutting that together, we kind of figured out the... The, the beats of the film, which is we need to show a little bit of what was life like before the attacks, mm-hmm. how it felt the day of the attacks, why it felt like, oh, their their job <laughs> didn't mean anything at this point, or, or should we even do our jobs? Are we all fired? Um, and then 
do our job was to try and process uh, what we all have experienced and, and put that uh, on the page. And, um, you know, there's some backlash to that. There's some people who are supportive of it. And, and that kind of uh, became kind of like, oh, okay, that, those are the beats for the film that we're going to, this is going to play out on a large scale. But we've, now we figured it out because we figured out this little chunk. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so we would cut it together so that by the time we, we started pitching the film to distributors, we already had like a really good rough cut of the film to be, so that we were like, we're not, we're not asking you to help us make a film, we're helping, asking you to help us finish a film. Right. Um, you know, as we were finishing it during the pandemic, I, I think that's why distributors were excited because they were like, oh, this isn't something we're going to have to figure out how to make during a pandemic, this is just how do we help these people finish this film during a pandemic? Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say one section that I'm so happy you included, and it also solves part of the problem for people that, you know, was showing you know, the towers coming down and, and the video uh, footage is Howard Stern. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because that segment says so much, Nick. You've got Howard saying, "Okay, breaking news: a plane just flew into the twin into the, one of the towers. Obviously, a, a new pilot, an errant pilot. Next thing you know, it's oh my god, and you see the reaction in his studio when it dawns on everybody. Okay, now it's now it's the second tower. Now it's the Pentagon, and I think that really captures what everyone in America." and the world, how they were feeling at that exact moment. And I love how you interwove that into this tapestry. Yeah, that was a great um, discovery was, was uh, as we were interviewing people, a lot of people would mention that, oh, I, I heard it was happening because I was listening to Howard Stern. And um, so when we, we found that show, um, it is a great kind of amazing document because it is a real time reaction. You know, mm-hmm. they're not, they're not newscasters uh, where they have to, you know, try to tamper down any emotion and just report what's happening. They're just, you know, human be- beings on a radio talk show who are witnessing this happen in real time and are just as confused as everyone else and making the same assumptions that are of everyone else. Like, Oh, the first planet, it must have just been a mistake that they, Oh, you know, and then the realization when it's the second tower gets hit that, oh, no, there's something going on, and then the Pentagon gets hit, and it's like, we are under attack, like, what's happening? And so um, we were, like, very grateful that uh, that, that the footage and, like, that um, the show was pointed out to us uh, from interview subjects because it did really give us, again, something to, different from, from other... Uh, films where uh, you know I don't know if anyone else has Howard Stern's perspective or show on that day, but it seems like um, just the maybe the most uh, human response, where it's not um, under the gaze of, of being a stoic newscaster, but just being a, a real person in yeah. real time, uh, seeing what's happening and, and not being and not knowing what's happening. Yeah, I mean that because I've never seen that footage and I don't listen to Howard Stern. So, for me, that was the first time I had seen that and heard that. And that is exactly, I mean, he was the average American in that moment. And he articulated the raw emotion of of what everybody was feeling. It's like, what the hell? Um, 
So, yeah, I'm so happy that you found that and you included that. You know, looking at this now, um, you know, you have the SNL footage in there with Rudy Giuliani and the first responders. Uh, you've got Louis C.K. in there. Um, of course, he was vilified because of comments he made. Uh, you know, do you have, you know, was there any kind of hesitation on your part? You know, given what has now transpired since you started this film, um, did you have any trepidation about including? I mean, Giuliani and the first responders, that was a, a seminal moment in emotional recovery. But do you now have to sit there and go, wow, maybe we shouldn't have, have maybe we should not have included that. Maybe we should not have included Louis C.K.? Yes, the connotation now is a lot different than then. Yes, 
record and so if we're going to do something about this topic they, they should be included but making sure we had context the right, uh, context uh, around it you know you know it's kind of like tcm giving context around gone with the wind now yeah yeah exactly so, so it's uh yeah i had i mean i i, I know someone who is related to the family uh and he's uh, the director and he's like yeah no like put that context there like that's that's fine like you need that context but you you don't want to lose um something like that that is so historically important uh to time just uh, because of, of you know uh, all the negative things about it you know yeah i mean you can't erase history just by ignoring it yeah so hopefully we provided enough context but uh that was definitely something uh, that was challenging and, and that uh, we went back and forth with many times. And uh, but there was probably uh, distributors who, who, for those reasons, were like, oh, this is too much, like, this is too much for us. We don't need to get involved in anything like this. So uh, it was good to have a partner in Vice who uh, was not afraid of, of those potential uh, hot rail no, I, I think the context is great. I love that you had Nathan Lane give the context uh, regarding Giuliani. Um, Nathan Lane carries a sort of gravitas in entertainment, in the community. He's very thoughtful in a lot of things he says. And the fact that, you know, the star of the producers, which tackles another a dark subject from a comedic point of view in the annals of history. Um, Hitler and, you know, and Nazis. So I think that was perfect, perfect. And Cedric the Entertainer, Cedric always has something thoughtful to say, but he says it with a really funny bent. But you, you can tell in the inflection of his voice when he's being funny, but it's like, yeah, this concerns me. Finds a way to to uh, discuss things with, that would be hard to talk about, and uh, with Nathan and Matthew Broderick, with the producers. I mean, that was a, a huge um, uh, get for us. That was yeah. uh, um, Sean Hayes, uh, the uh, actor, also has a production a production company, and he's an executive producer on the film. And he they watched the rough cut, and they were like, "This is great," but our big thing is. Uh, you know what? How do we include Broadway? How do we include all the people who were performing comedy on stage at the time? Yeah. And um, he's thankfully uh, friends with with Nathan and Matthew, so he was able to uh, to, to text them and, and say like, "Hey, you guys want to sit down and talk about the producers?" So uh, it, it was extremely helpful because the fact that they were doing uh, performing the show. You know, written by the brilliant Mel Brooks that is dealing with the taboo subject mm -hmm. of, of Hitler and Nazis. And, uh, you know, if you, when you think about it, when it came out, you know, there had been a lot of time had passed when it came out, but it still felt too soon for people. And so how that just uh, dovetailed perfectly with, with what we were talking about and what we were examining. So um, it was great for, for Sean and his partner, uh, uh, Todd Milliner, to... to Yeah, because that was a very big thing for Broadway to shut down. 
you know, to bring in Nathan and Ma and Matthew, I think that was, as you said, it was a huge get for you. Now, was there anybody who said no to you out of all of these, be it directors, producers, writers, comedians, was there anyone that said no when you approached them? There was, um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of people that we, we would have loved to uh, have talked to us. And, and you can sort of, when you watch the film, you'll kind of guess who those are. People yeah. will have the archival interviews with, with the, the David Lettermans and John Stewart's and Stephen Colbert's The World, um, because we still wanted to include their, their point of view and perspective, uh, even if it wasn't with us. Because, again, uh, our big thing was we just want this to be a, a definitive the historical record of, of, of what happened, and so we don't want to uh, not touch on those things just because they uh, didn't have time or couldn't, or in some cases we had a talk show host who said, you know, oh, <laughs> this is, uh, thank you, this sounds great, but that was the, the worst time in my life, and I just really don't want to talk about it or think about it uh, anymore, and, and especially... As we were finishing the film during the pandemic, it was like, yeah, we totally understand. We, there's no reason to make anyone any more depressed than they need to be at this moment. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it, it was, uh, there was some disappointments, but I, I, hopefully in the end we got um, the perspectives we needed. But, yeah, there were, you know, it'd be great to talk to Mel Brooks. We would, we would never say no to him. But um, uh, it did also prove tricky with, with the pandemic of, of finding a, a safe way to shoot and mm -hmm. Nick, you know, how personal is this documentary for you? And I ask that because I know that you've got a Middle Eastern background. Your dad, I believe, was Muslim, a Libyan exchange student. And you have a whole section in there about how the, the comics, the Middle Eastern comics, how they had to totally reinvent and approach things uh, after 9-11. I'm curious... How personal this was for you, given your own background. Yeah, it was um, it was extremely personal, especially like you said that that section on um, Arab and, and Muslim and Southeast Asian descent comics and how um, you know not only were they dealing with uh, you know the fear of, of being beaten in the streets because people might think they're a terrorist. Uh, there's just tons of attacks at the time happening in, in New York and around the country. And so, uh, you know, they had challenges off the stage and then on the stage they had to deal with what was happening. Uh, and they couldn't, uh, you know, it's, it's like, I think Dino Vidal says, like, when you have a last name like that, it's like, people are going to know what's up. You can't just pretend, oh, I'm just, gonna, I'm just a regular Joe who's going to be making these jokes about uh, uh, my, uh, my mother-in-law. You know, like, I, I need to talk about this because the audience is going to be thinking about it anyway and um, especially during the previous uh, administration where there was a Muslim travel ban where uh, my father and my siblings could no longer come to this country 
yeah, it definitely was a, a very personal thing that I, uh, you know, fought for and tried to make, you know, one of the best sections of the film that I could because I, I do think it's important to show how um, misrepresentation in the media and news, uh, you know, can have it on in ways that we don't imagine. And it was, uh, I don't know, I don't know if brave is the right word, but it was definitely, you know, something like that. Dean and Ahmed Ahmed and Mazzaroni and, and Aaron Cater to to still go on stage despite death threats, to still go on stage to, to confront other comedians about jokes that were inciting violence uh, against uh, Muslim people. Like, um, you know, I, 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 I would hope, you know, they're, they're artists, just like I'm an artist, and, you know, you got to speak out against the things you don't think are right in the world, and uh, for them to, to do that and to make people laugh in the process is, is truly something that I, I tip my hat to. Mm-hmm. Well, one last question before I let you go, Nick. Putting on your filmmaker hat here, your first documentary, it's now under your belt. Everybody is going to get a chance to see it tonight, and then if you're in L.A., you get to you can come to the Chinese theater complex for dances with films on Sunday and see it on the big screen. But what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker with this extremely daunting undertaking? (laughs) Uh, I I mean, I definitely learned that, uh, that, I mean, we were taking a gamble at the beginning that just Julie and I, for the most part, could, could make this film a reality. And, uh, you know, I think we learned that you, you do need help, you know, along the way. You know, it's like if, if we didn't have, the, uh, you know, a Todd Berry or a David Cross or a Mark Maron or a Janine Garoppolo who sat down with us before we had sold it to Vice, um, we, would not, we might not have ever sold it to Vice. So, uh, you know, you, you do need help from people, but that if you have the will and you have the passion for a project, that you can, you can make it become a reality. You know, we... This is both of our first documentary. I don't. I don't think it'll be the last for either of us. And I don't think we would. We would do the same process again for five <laughs> years of just the two of us. Uh, hopefully now it'll be a little hard, uh, easier for us to get help uh, and support uh, on the next one. But you know, it is. Um, I don't know. It's it's pretty amazing to think. Yeah, that I started. This all started from a plane trip ride, reading a book of Are there five people who could help you and. Um, just from that little uh, inspiration, this whole film has, has come about. So, uh, you know, yeah, that would be the big thing. It's just, just the passion. Passion can 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 do a lot for you. And uh, I think that was something after every interview you would do, Julie and I would just uh, turn to each other and be like, yep, this is good. Like, this is good. We're getting really good stuff. This is, this is worth it. This is worth it. The bus ride from New York to Boston in a snowstorm. This is worth, <laughs> you know, uh, putting putting this on our credit cards. Like this is this is worth it. Uh, uh, and you know, if it, if it wasn't worth it, if it wasn't something that we were passionate about, it, it, it wouldn't have gotten done. So, you know, uh, passion for getting something made uh, in this case really succeeded. Well. I think you've succeeded beautifully with with Too Soon Comedy after 9-11. So now, you know, are we going to see, in 20 years from now, are we going to see a Too Soon post-pandemic? <laughs> Maybe. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we had been, uh, we 
been approached about doing something like that, and I think both of us are feeling kind of like we discussed earlier that it's really hard to be objective at this point and to know, like, we couldn't, we don't even know what the ending of the film is, right? Because <laughs> you know, we're still in this pandemic, so uh, it'd be hard to see. But I, I think um, with any of the historical events um, that have uh, affected comedy, whether it's the pandemic or uh, the previous administration, you know, there there is probably something there to examine, but we probably also do need some space from it yes. so that we can see what the true ripple effects are, because right now we're just, we're in the middle of the storm. We, you know, we haven't even gotten out of it yet to, to, to see what, what's happening. So, yeah, and... Yeah. And uh, come on, you thought that you that we were past the storm when you started this documentary, and now here we are, and our troops are fine. Just now, got out of Afghanistan, and so um, you never know where those ripples take you and how long they ripple. Exactly. Oh, Nick, I can't thank you enough. This has been a delight talking with you again, and I can't wait to see what you do next. I really can't. Hopefully it's not as uh, long a wait for the next one. I hope not. All right. Well, you have a great day and a great airing tonight and a good turnout on Sunday. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks, Nick. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Nick Fituri-Scan, director, editor, actually co-director, along with Julie Sebaugh, of Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11, a powerful documentary. See it, see it, see it. Starts airing on Vice tonight. We'll be at Dances with Films on Saturday, September the 11th at 2.30 if you're in the L.A. area. So, that is all the time we have on this special edition of Behind the Lens. We will be back on Monday, September 13th at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AdrenalineRadio.com. And don't forget, you miss any of our shows live, you can always catch up with them on BehindTheLensOnline.net or on any of the various podcast platforms out there. Once the show airs live, it becomes a podcast uh, on, the, on the multiplicity of platforms. So check us out. Catch up with old episodes. And until Monday, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.